Well, let's call Joel real quick before we start with the content here and get an update. Hmm. He's on paternity leave. That's right. I'll put him on speaker. How's it going? Good. We're about to record. What are you guys up to? Just at the dinner table. How's the the baby? Uh, last night he was up a lot, but he sleeps all day. Really? That's great. <laughs> sleeps all day and then... Uh, yeah. Likes to be up at night. Very so agreeable. Agreeable, yeah. Except it keeps us up most of the night. <laughs> You pretty tired, or are you feeling okay? I feel okay right now. I, mean, I feel like I could go to sleep if I lie down. <laughs> the main time that I feel like really tired is like, you know, 3 to 5 a.m. An understandable time to be tired. That is, yep. That's usually when I'm tired, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll record, but give you the, the week off. Hope you can sleep some. Yeah, maybe you can sleep some while we're recording. Talk to you guys later. Have a good night, bye. All right, bye. Standing in for Joel today, we have our cousin, Christian. Hello. Special guest. Special guest, yes. <laughs> Very special guest. Christian grew up pretty close to us, so he was at the house a lot for holidays and church conferences and really just part of the family. Christian is a professional artist and also well-versed in theology <laughs> and has more recently gone back to school at Liberty University and also working as a stained glass art designer. Sufficient? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> I proof. I'll answer to that description. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, one of the reasons that I thought it'd be cool to talk to Christian is because, like I said, he's an artist, but he's also very interested in theology and the theory behind what he's doing, mm -hmm. which is kind of similar to my reason for being in seminary. I haven't talked about that a lot, but a lot of my reasoning for starting seminary is how I feel like having a strong theological foundation will affect the art I create through film. And so I thought it'd be fun to talk to Christian a little bit about his art process and how he sees that whole relationship between theology and art or theology and work maybe is a better way to put it. Yeah. And in our you know particular purview, it's the creative arts, whether you know, traditional visual arts or cinematography and video production. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and you went to seminary and I'm doing I'm finishing up my master of fine arts in an art department. And I'm, <laughs> I'm torn. Maybe I should have gone your route. I, I like your approach. <laughs> <laughs> I would think there's more networking opportunities uh, going the MFA route. Yeah, that's that might be true. Like a lot of that probably depends on the university. It's also a terminal degree, a master of fine arts. So assuming successful graduation, I can teach at university level, mm -hmm. which I would genuinely, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but that's something I'm genuinely interested in um, down the road, mm -hmm. probably more long range, long range plans. I haven't ruled out eventually doing an MFA to potentially be able to teach at some point. Yeah. We'll see. I have ruled that out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's start with how you got into art, which is probably something you've been asked a billion times. It, yeah, it's kind of funny because um, I still think I, I think there's still a perception that being an artist is a little bit like having a magical power. It, it, you just don't <laughs> expect to be able to be trained into art. It's like, oh, you're an uh -huh. artist. It's the closest thing we have to being a wizard, I think, in our modern day. I feel like older people in America sometimes have that about speaking other languages, you know, like, uh, oh, well, that, you must be really smart, <laughs> but I just could never do it. Yeah. Uh, maybe so. <laughs> maybe that's true. 
But uh, yeah, to answer your question, Paul, um, you know, back in, it was probably middle school when I really started to realize, oh, I've got a, uh, an ability in this. Mm. It, up to that point, I'd had a lot of hobbies. And, you know, that's pretty common. Uh, sport, I still love sports. Um, but I did things like stamp collecting too, you know, nerd stuff. Uh, just kidding. Not, stamp collecting is great. So for all you philatelists <laughs> out there, not knocking it. Uh, very interesting. But I, when I started with art, I was naturally good at it. People thought it was kind of magical, which felt good. And uh, but probably mainly, <laughs> I had a I had a really good teacher uh, starting in in middle school. I think I was twelve. She was a good, solid Christian, um, a, you know, a good a, a good theologian, really um, good lay lay theologian, as it were, and just a good artist. And she was very encouraging about it. And she, but she was rigorous, you know. She really wanted me to work hard and do my best, and expected that. Mm-hmm. And uh, somewhere along the line, after she you know sort of tested me out and realized, yeah, okay, he's got ability. She was like, you can actually turn this into a profession. Mm. That's probably the first time I'd really thought, oh, there's something I can do that I like and I'm good at, and I could make it into a profession. And that's about the age when I started to think, I'll need a profession one day, you know? <laughs> so I, I think there's a, a combination of, of factors there that really got me into art. That's cool. I guess the next step was going to school for that. Yeah, so I um, was taking private lessons from Merritt, um, I think once a week, mm. up through my freshman year in college when I went to actually a local school who had a really good traditional art program and spent four years there. And they their strength was technical ability in the traditional working method. So painting and drawing what you see primarily, mm. being able to render things well and accurately. Um, it is my firm position that most institutions of higher learning, that's where they drop the ball. Hmm. What my school didn't have particularly well, um, I I would say this is definitely an area of weakness when I was in that program, was um, the creative side, to be honest, which sounds a little odd because usually we associate the arts with being artistic or creative. Mm -hmm. But that was a weakness of the program I was in is they didn't really present much opportunity at all for students to pursue creativity. Hmm. Um, And there's a balance there. And, And I think that's where most art institutions or, or institutions of higher learning that have an art program, that's where they kind of put all their attention is on the creative side. You know, originality mm. is king. and um, Not the technique. Yeah, technique is almost not even considered at a lot of institutions, I think. So at your school, was there a focus on realism? Yeah, high focus on realism. Um, even within the illustration side of things, the tendency was just towards a more naturalism, making things look look natural or real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like you grew a lot during that time being in school? That's a good question. It goes along with, I think, something um, that we'll talk about here in just a little while. Um, I, you know, it's, it's hard to articulate what impact, what different parts of or seasons of life have. Yeah. I know there was artistic learning that happened and I'm thankful for that. And I know that was necessary mm-hmm. and important, mm-hmm. but in the grand scheme of things, like from God's perspective, if you will, I, I really think there was more character training and preparation for the future than anything else. I think it's kind of interesting to realize that all three of us pretty much figured out our vocational interests in the high school phase. Well, I guess you're talking about before that, but, you know, definitely going to college was not where we found the thing. It was more Mm. Hmm. in your guys' case, probably developing what you had already decided. In my case, I think it was more, uh, something to just get through. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in one sense, I'd, I've really known since I was t- like 12, oh, this is what I really want to do. 
But the capacity of what I do now is way different. I mean, worlds apart from what I thought I would be doing. Mm. And it is for the better, but that was a painful process. Um, Definitely, you know, God choreographed and I'm very grateful for it, but it it was a painful process and a long one. At this point, did you think much about theology behind what you were creating, or was it more just a task? I think task might have a kind of a negative connotation. Um, I just, <laughs> it, I mean, creative in the sense of creating an artifact, like creating something. Mm. Um, but I didn't really think too deeply about what that meant. It was cool. Like I said, it had that magical quality. Mm. I liked it. I was good at it. But the why behind the creation just didn't, I didn't think about it that deeply. That was that period of undergrad and then immediately after college was probably the, the period I was farthest away from the Lord in my life. Not probably, definitively. Mm. It, it, that was the huge factor of why I didn't consider that side of artistic creation more. Yeah. It was still what you'd call fine art, art for contemplation. Yeah. But I, I wasn't really thinking about that. I just thought of genre categories like landscapes, maritime landscapes. That was my primary um, genre when I was an independent fine art professional back in Florida. You know, I like this subject matter. I like painting it. And this has a good sales percentage rate looking mm-hmm. at the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the national sort of averages. Yeah, I definitely remember your disdain for people's uh, more commercial suggestions of how you could. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know what you uh, should do? You should start painting. <laughs> <laughs> Paint, college football coaches yeah or, that was an actual <laughs> suggestion <laughs> i'm so glad you remember that i still tell that story i don't remember this yeah <laughs> yeah there i were, remember there him once talking suggestions. about basically just people kind of being like coming up with suggestions of how you can more or less sell out you know <laughs> yep suggestions <laughs> for selling out so yeah. uh, so we're getting more into like post-college. So what did that look like for you moving into more of a career? Rose-colored glasses. Even with the economic crash, I was, I was wearing rose-colored glasses. And then uh, reality started to set in after several years <laughs> when I would still get into mm-hmm. some big shows. I would still make a big sale here and there, but it was not consistent enough to make a living. Really kind of by a long shot. And that was just gutting because I, I'd put all my eggs in that basket. And I'd actually been encouraged to. I mean, you can hear all different advice from from experts just to cover any perspective. Mm. Um, you know, you should do this. You shouldn't do that. And they have good reasons. So I took the advice of, you know, go all in, um, commit to it fully and just, you know, work the side job until it starts to, to happen in that main area of, of career focus. Mm-hmm. And so that's the mm-hmm. route I took. And um, it's I'm sure it's good advice. It's just God's clear purpose was for that not to work out the way I wanted it to. Mm. And that took seven years of just wearing me down to give up that conception of what my life and my career should look like. Yeah, that's confusing because, I mean, I remember you very much feeling like you're pursuing what God has called you to do. Yeah, and it's just incredibly confusing, um, especially... Man, I have to phrase this carefully um, because my parents were good. My mom especially is just an amazing woman of God. But there were just big gaps in my spiritual formation um, from my childhood, kind of especially from my father and especially in this area. 
Mm. Um, any spiritual maturity I have in this area really comes from your family, the Sigler family, mm. through the discipleship courses your dad wrote and just the influence of you know, Harvest Church and you guys um, just being able to visit so often. But it was just, just gutting to know, I mean, really know just deeply you're pursuing the career, the vocation that God has for you. Mm. So why isn't like, why isn't it paying the bills? Mm. Why isn't it putting food on the table? Like if God promises to provide all our needs, not our wants, but our needs, like how does that jive with, I can't pay rent this month on my art. Mm-hmm. So that that is an incredibly frustrating place to be. And I'm sure I'm sure I'm not the only one that's been in that position. Some <laughs> some of you listeners out there might be in that spot now. So hopefully as we continue through my <laughs> career story here, there'll be some encouragement. Uh, when when you say a weakness in that area, do you mean in terms of knowing God's will for your life? Or well, th- that the answer to that segues into leading up to where my wife and I live now, and me being at Liberty um, and finishing up the, the Master of Fine Arts program there, and my job as a stained glass art designer. So, Daniel, just remind me to answer that question as we get to, okay. you know, th- this part of life. Yeah, I'll ask it again. Yeah, good, good. Keep, keep Act it in like mind. it's the first time you've heard it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me wait for the train. <laughs> wow. I didn't realize you were that close yeah, that to a train tracks. That was the loud one. We have a county highway 20 yards away from our house out front, so there are at least four vehicles that we know by their sound <laughs> from half a mile away. They're oh, so no. loud. Uh, no. Before we totally move on to Liberty and that next season, while you were doing art professionally, I was curious if there were any specific works you did that really stick out to you or uh, had a big impact on you or very memorable. Yeah, it's um, the one that probably sticks out most is uh, it's called a a plein air painting, which literally means painted outside in the fresh air. Mm. And it was of three ducks, little ducks. I was part of a plein air competition in um, Alabama and uh, I painted this and, you know, brought it home afterwards and I had it on my wall at, at my studio. And um, I was at a church function not too long after I painted it. And some of the other, um, you know, young adults this is in my mid-20s were, were sort of looking at my website. And this one girl specifically was drawn to that painting. She just loved it. She just was amazed and she just loved all my work. Hmm. And um, so I ended up selling it to her. Uh, you know, I gave her the friends and family discount and, uh, and then I ended up marrying her. So that, <laughs> that was, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the, you know, that I, the painting is probably what just introduced us officially, even though we went to the same church, we, we hadn't really talked a lot. I did not know this story. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't see that coming at all. <laughs> I didn't know if you guys had ever heard that story. So I wanted to play it casual. Um, no, that was, uh, my wife, Lauren. Um, so when we first really met, it was because it was a business transaction. She was buying a painting and I was very happy to sell paintings and, uh, we just, wow. you know, started yeah. talking and then, um, we fell in love eventually. Isn't that nice? Yeah. That's, uh, that's the start to a movie or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's great. A, uh, surefire Oscar winner. Yeah. For whatever reason, the two that stick in my mind is, the painting you did of the eggs on the newspaper. Maybe uh, yeah, that was like uh, one of your a, yeah. first ones that got uh, a lot of recognition. Critical or acclaim. Critical acclaim. Yep. Was that one of your first competitions or something? 
Uh, that Is was that honestly, why I remember that one so much. Yeah, probably so. Um, I mean, you were young t- at the time yeah. for sure, um, and that was probably my first paying that I would consider good quality, even as a okay. you know a working professional. Now that's yeah. that was still a good painting, um, yeah. and it did win an award locally. Um, and I was you know fifteen, so that was one of the early times also where I was like, oh, I'm good at this, and people like really like it, and they like me. And it you just were fifteen. Yeah, that, one that, that one stands out to me as well for whatever reason. It must be for the reason. How about you guys that? Are about. Uh, that's incredible that both of you remember that one specifically. That is really interesting. Well, so and that the one, story uh, went that apparently at the competition they had to like take it out of the frame to make sure it was in the <laughs> photograph. Or you're something. right. You're right. I forgot. I don't know if that. that's true, but that's the story I heard. Based on that, you, you know, the, the listener can can obviously assume that it was highly realistic. It was um, photo real, right. and it was uh, three eggs sitting on a newspaper um, with like a loaf of bread inside. But you, you didn't see the bread; you just saw the eggs on the newspaper. Yes. And I think, the, yeah, the newspaper was in French, so I labeled it something French—a um, very artsy thing to do. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that's really that's really funny that you guys remembered that. Honestly, I'd maybe I'll about put that a one. maybe I'll put the picture up on um, oh you should like the YouTube. The YouTube that channel. Real oh, throwback. Yeah. Real throwback. Yeah. yeah. Do you still uh, own the rights to that one? <laughs> I specific. Yeah. So in the early days of my career, like most, you know, artists that are just training, I found the picture in a magazine because, um, you know, photographers that get their work published in magazines are usually good at taking photos. Right. So I, I did write the magazine um, and ask permission to sell, sell the painting or, or use it in some sort of marketing of my own. And they gave me express permission via email. So I'm sure it's, you know, digitally preserved forever and I'm safe from copyright infringement. Excellent. Um, One of my other ones of yours that stands out is uh, probably on the other end of the spectrum. It was very (laughs) much like not, I don't think you ever were intending to sell it. It's not like, I don't know. I just thought it was cool, which is um, the two koi fish. Oh yeah. Oh, you know, you know, good memory. You guys, man, real throwback. I can't believe it. I still thought that was a great piece. It wasn't a painting. It was, um, it was a project for a graphic design class. Um, and there were some really specific parameters that are just hard to describe, but basically, Oh, I just remembered what you were talking about. Yes. Okay. It was like a color wheel. It was. Yeah, that's so I can't even remember the full parameters of the assignment. But what I how I fulfilled it was um, there was this is going to be so hard to visualize. It's so hard to verbalize. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you want to see a picture. Yeah, I'll I'll put like (laughs) go to to the YouTube channel, I guess, or I'll put it in the Um, show notes or something. (laughs) I I do have to briefly describe It's two koi fish sort of swimming in a circle and a a Mm. color wheel was present within their scales and I still think that, yeah, it was a good compositional idea and everything. Um, but yeah, that's surprising that, that that's one you remember so well. Yeah, I remember that it was like rainbow colors. I did not remember until you brought that up that the, I guess the assignment was to make a color wheel in a very like unique, yeah. interesting way or something. Yeah, I think that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. Well, and more impressive than those, I think, was Sonic and Knuckles that was <laughs> hanging on my dresser for years. Now you still have those, right? I put a lot of time. I still into have. Those. Uh, I I have yeah. preserved at least one of them. Oh, I think are you I, I may only be. Yeah, that is incredible. It's it's, it, it's in my old bedroom over there. How about Alabama, that? So. Hopefully, your mom hasn't gone through the drawers and cleaned house. 
no that um the the one like bookshelf thing is pretty much like has has been left to my uh, uh, <laughs> little, my little, little, little uh, daniel museum. shrine <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, that's I still have some Archie by. comics, and I've got the uh, Hypersonic versus Super Knuckles wow. comic. I've got the Archangels. Uh, <laughs> Actually, though, like the that. more seriously, the second one that really sticks out to me is the Jesus washing the feet yeah. painting. Which I don't know what the title of that actually was. Uh, but... Servant and Lord. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, that was a great one. Really sticks. Yeah, out that's actually been kind of a perennial favorite mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. that is one of probably the the few from especially my college days that had well i can't say one of the few i tried to put some intellectual or you know spiritual or philosophical content in my college pieces mm. but that one turned out well and it personally for me that was a powerful theme um the humility mm-hmm. of christ in that sense of washing the disciples feet again those were the years i was starting to really walk away from the lord in a lot of ways so it didn't have the impact on me that you know it does now for example mm, that's really interesting yeah that actually sold recently too so that's oh, finally really? in, cool. in a private collection yeah years later so am i allowed yeah. to put a picture of it or not? yeah oh yeah for sure um oh, okay great. sales great. of original artwork only for the unique artifact okay so cool. it's it's kind of like the uh non-fungible tokens the nfts you know, anybody can view it, but only one person has the original. Gotcha. Uh, nice. That's why you could you could go back and sell prints of it. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Moving right along, unless you guys had anything else on that that you wanted to say. No. Let's let's move right along. Okay. Moving right along. So then, how did you kind of transition from that season into going back to school and where you are now? Yeah, and I, I think Daniel had a question maybe that related to this period. <laughs> What was that question, Daniel? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was that question? No, uh, Daniel, Daniel had asked. Um, oh, in right. what, wait, in wait. What just sense? ask it again. Just ask it again. Okay. Sorry. Okay. I got it. I got it. Got it? I got it. Okay. Um, he's got this. He's, got, he's a professional. Yeah, an, emerging, an emerging professional. That's right. Um, <laughs> Once those sponsorships roll in. So a while back. Um, hmm, wait, no. That, oh, yeah. oh the boy. Right. There go the sponsorships. <laughs> this close to squarespace all right so you mentioned that uh you felt that there was uh, shall we call it a gap in your spiritual formation um and i believe you used the term in that way and i wasn't uh i wasn't completely clear on what you meant by that way so one of the main gaps from my childhood was um and so my dad passed away in 2013. So as I describe this, I'll just say, you know, a lot of respect for my dad in many ways. Um, and everybody has areas of improvement. Everybody has strengths and weaknesses. So this is one of his weaknesses. And it does play directly into the next season of my life and my life story and my spiritual formation. So it's pertinent. Mm. So he um, he was a very intelligent guy in, in various parts of his professional or, you know, his, his working years. And a very hardworking guy. Yeah, and it's extremely hardworking. And he mm-hmm. he would always make it to our sports games and stuff too. Sports games. He he would he was actively involved. So he wasn't like a workaholic. He was actively involved in mm-hmm. me, me and my brother's um, lives. But in his just working life, he had several opportunities that he really thought he'd be good at. He thought he'd do well, and they're snatched away. 
And he did not respond well to that. And he he really developed a lot of bitterness about that um, against God and against a, a few people. And so that was an example that I had of just being an adult male was sort of, you know, well, this is, this is what happens in life and this is how one responds. And, you know, I couldn't articulate it, obviously mm. I was just a kid growing up, but mm. that behavior and that modeling really started to become part of me. Is it kind of like the system is against you, it's rigged against you? The system, but even beyond that, I mean, God, like God is against mm. us. He's against me. Uh, maybe our family mm. has a curse associated with it, Some something like that. Um, and so as I was coming out of school and I was just very sure of God's calling for me in the visual arts, but still exploring mm. what that looked like. I did have ideas of what should be happening. Uh, I should be making painting sales. I should be able to put bread on the table and pay my bills, you know, rent and insurance and all like through my artwork. Mm -hmm. And that seemed a very reasonable expectation. And when that wasn't happening, I I was responding the way my dad did and getting angry at God and getting bitter, um, depression. Um, There was, you know, a lot of that. Um, pretty severe. I mean, there was a lot of demonic attack and I was encouraging it by different behaviors in my life too. And that's one of the big ways, you know, your dad's, um, discipleship books and his, you know, a huge part of his ministry and, and in his sermons is the life of the mind. What are we thinking about? What are we exposing ourselves to? And that finally got through. I mean, it took years, but it finally got through. And, um, so after, I started, you know, God just got a hold of me in that way. And I started responding to that. He started slowly to change the desires of my heart and start guiding me towards, um, you know, how he really wanted me to pursue the arts, the the visual arts Mm -hmm. in my own life. And those aspects of my, my dad's modeling that were less than ideal, God, had to break those. And that really was a painful and long process because well, for, for a lot of reasons, but you know, we're in first person. It's hard to see in mm. us in third person. We just, mm-hmm. we develop these ways of responding to life, these ways of thinking, these ways of acting. And a lot of times we don't consider why we do it that way. We don't contemplate, we don't view ourselves in the third person. So as I was well out of school and I was trying to establish a career as a, as an oil painter I came to a, and again, things were not successful. I was always working a second job. And so I'd work, you know, all day Saturday, nights and weekends, basically. And and I was tired and I was frustrated and I was angry. But then God started to really speak to me. You know, what are you, what are you pursuing and why? Hmm. You know that you should find your total, um, your total meaning, your total validation, all your joy in God. Now he uses various means to to fulfill that, but that is what you should be striving for. And you do have bread on the table and you do have a roof over your head. It's far less than ideal. I mean, after my dad passed away, I moved back in with my mom. So I was, you know, 26 and living with my mother. Uh, who wants to be that guy? If you're, you know, you have aspirations and dreams and hopes and you're working hard. Um, that's just a real blot against your your manliness, you know. I was, mm-hmm. I was less than a man. But God really, really got a hold of me. Thank, thank God. <laughs> and so I started to come around to that idea. And that led to me just taking 
different um, approaches to just putting bread on the table and being okay with it. Like I started to do more private lessons and there are some, especially um, there's some elderly ladies um, in the art community there in Florida where I'm from. They're just wonderful people and they needed, you know, private instruction. And I hadn't really been open to that because I wanted to be a painter. I wanted to paint mm-hmm. paintings and that people would buy. It was definitely a step of humility for me because it seemed like a step down at that time to teach and just teach you know, these lovely people, but that didn't have the sort of prestige and it wasn't my, my idea. That that wasn't my vision. Mm. So I started to accept that. And then I started to find a lot of joy in that, a lot of validation. And more and more people were like, you're, you're a good teacher. Like you're, you're really good. And I'm so glad you're my teacher. And that, as I began to get my spiritual journey back on track, um, you know, I was drawing close to the Lord spending time with him and his word and prayer, abstaining from a lot of bad habits and activities that I've been engaged with. And then I started teaching Sunday school occasionally. What was the catalyst there for engaging more of your spiritual life? Yeah. And I was actually just about to say, um, so, I mean, your dad was a big part of that just in his idea of, um, you know, life of the mind, thinking about what you're thinking about spiritual disciplines. And then at that time, I also started to be interested in um, just Christian doctrine which is a very philosophical branch of Christianity in a certain sense. I mean, it's theology. I, I like to say theology philosophy because to me it's, it should be one word. I think the Germans sort of smash things together to make multiple words into one word, and then it's great. And I wish we could do that in English. So hyphenated theology philosophy. How about, how about theophilosophy? Yeah, I mean that's shorter to say, but it's oh, I was I was I was I thought that was a home run. <laughs> All right. But but as I started to to try to like understand I I claim I'm a Christian, why is that? Am I actually a Christian? Am I behaving like a Christian? Am I doing what Christians ought to do? It led to the study of doctrine, which led to the study of theology and philosophy. And so although, you know, especially at that point, this is my late 20s now. I wasn't um, formally trained. I haven't taken theology or philosophy classes in, in college or, or even, you know, post-grad. Um, I read extensively, you know, like all of John Wesley's sermons. Um, I'm working through philosoph- Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview right now by J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig. Early church fathers, medieval scholars and, and philosophers like Bernard of Clairvaux and all that. I just, I, I love it. So as I was open to God's leading me in a way that I hadn't considered, like teaching and, and being humble in that sense, for me, he led me to these other things. And they were not only good for my for my life, I mean, my spiritual life and my, my walk with the Lord, but they began to directly affect my career. And he began leading me in my profession in a way that was, that's extremely validating. And it, this is definitively far more what I want to be doing rather than just painting oil paintings. That thing, though, about having a little bit too rigorous of an idea of like, what's your goal and what's an acceptable Mm. modicum of success? Yeah. And then having to sort of humble yourself and step into something else is super relatable for me, though, because after the disaster relief job dried up and I knew I wanted to stay in Japan and and even before that, like trying to get to, to Japan after college, I always had had this real bias against, you know, I don't want to teach. That's, mm-hmm. you know, anyone can do that. You don't have to know the language to teach English. And so the disaster relief job was okay for that, was good right. for that. And I felt like, you know, I was more stepping the way I wanted. But then because of wanting to stay and specifically trying to stay in that same area where there weren't 
a lot of other options for, you know, dealing with visas and all that stuff and eventually having to kind of, you know, in my mind, humble myself and teach English. (laughs) But I ended up being a really important step and definitely set the trajectory of my life till now. Yeah. And I would would tell this to students at LU too, um, in general, if you feel called, if you have a gifting in something, definitely pursue that. We have in scripture, we know that God gifts people. So pursue that and pursue with excellence and pursue it diligently and work hard. But as Corey Ten Boom said, hold all things loosely so that it hurts less when God pries it from your fingers. Um, <laughs> because I, I really feel like for, I, I would say for most genuine Christians, there's going to be a time where God, he, he pries something from you. I mean, we, we have that writ at large, you know, Moses' time on the backside of the desert, you know, before the burning bush. I mean, the, the examples are just just endless in Scripture. But it's in that time where you, you're probably not going to be successful in the world's terms. Like, you're not going to be a millionaire by the time you're 30. Most of us aren't. But if you're if you're not seeking wealth and fame and fortune, if you're seeking God, then those are the most important times, genuinely, hmm. because God's given you this vision. He's given you these, you know, these dreams, these hopes, these noble tasks. And then he has to hum- humble us and, and teach us to rely on him and before he allows us to fulfill those things in his plan. Hmm. And I, yeah, I mean, and I, you're you know, being confronted with your own inability to realize those intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think Moses is an ideal example, having trained in Pharaoh's house. I'm sure he's very intelligent. And then he seeks to become the leader in this way. And then not only does that all work out, he's, he's like laughed at, he's kind of mocked by his fellow Israelites. Like, who are you? Mm-hmm. And then he, he goes away and is forgotten about for four decades. So it's, um, stories like that are just so important and they need to be mm-hmm. yeah. thought of in a, in a context mm-hmm. of one's life. I mean, this applies mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, that's so. good. So coming through that, how did you end up at Liberty in Virginia and where you are now? Yeah. So um, I mentioned that there was a special duck painting and a special lady and that we were wed. You were there for that, <laughs> both of you. Um, yes. So at that point when we were married, I had really started to, um, we'll say, live into just a lot more of what God was intending for me, both personally and in my career. Yeah. But we, after marriage, you're sort of asking, okay, God, there's a big new season. What what would you have for us as a married couple? Mm-hmm. And going to, to a graduate program had sort of been in the back of my mind loosely for a couple of years because it adds an option for steady income. You know, being a professor at a, at a, at a college, at a university is a, a nine to five that will put bread on the table. And if you have a family, that's a blessing from the Lord. So I was thinking that it might be good to explore that. And God uh, really confirmed it. My wife was really affirmative of that. You know, that's important. And I, I, I called sort of out of the blue an old acquaintance from my undergraduate days who taught up here at Liberty University. Hmm. And he said that they had graduate student assistantships, these uh, scholarships where you work through the Master of Fine Arts program and you work for the department by teaching, um, and doing different jobs for the department. And, um, he said there were a couple of positions and I should apply. And so we prayed about it for a while. And, um, that th- there was just a lot of confirmation there, um, from, you know, family and, and friends at our church and just in prayer. And 
also I'd mentioned with me studying more about Christian doctrine and the Christian life and how is one a Christian truly, I'd, I'd started teaching once a month at the young adults group that we were with at the church we were, we were going to. And more and more confirmation that I was a good teacher. I explained things well. People were really engaged with what I was presenting. Mm-hmm. And so all those things were um, just very clear that that's what God wanted us to do. So I, I made that call and I applied. I was accepted. And within a very I mean, short amount of time after deciding, hey, let's, let's go this route, um, we packed up a U-Haul and moved all our belongings to a state we'd never lived in before. And I had never lived outside of, of Northwest Florida. Mm. So um, within a year, I was married, turned 30, changed you know locations for the first time in my life, changed jobs in a, in a big way, because now it wasn't just painting on my own in a studio. I was at the you know behest of um, the, the university uh, <laughs> I, was, I was working for. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of change. Yeah genuinely the only reason I was able to kind of go through with it and then stick with it is because of um, the spiritual training that God had been doing for the last six Mm. or seven years that it was extremely Mm. stressful physically I was just beat down emotionally mentally I I wasn't always the best at (laughs) I wasn't always the best to be around during you know some of the those early years at the university but by, by and large, you know, I remembered that time of just being broken down by God and, and thinking, you know, he, he knows what he's doing. I can trust him. It is extremely hard right now. And I don't understand some of the things, why, why these things are so hard, why it has to be this way. But I remember that lesson that I learned. And so I'm going to stick this out and I'm going to trust that God will, you know, not destroy me because it just, it feels that way sometimes. You just, you just feel like you're at the end of yourself, like emotionally and physically and and. Hmm. But spiritually, you know, in, inwardly, we're, we were renewed day by day. And that's the only thing that's gotten me through mm-hmm. some some of the times here in the midst of working and school and being a newlywed, you know, all these things. So what's been your primary focus in Virginia the past three years? Yeah. So as I was taking, especially, I feel like especially the art histories, mm. I just really started to fall in love with his historical art, but especially historical Christian art. Mm. I didn't really pay that much attention to art history as an undergrad because um, I just wanted to create art. And now mm. I really regret that um, very dichotomous approach to learning in my undergraduate mm. years because I, I love art history. Mm. But within the you know 2,000 years of Christian history and art starts really coming in about in the 300s to 400s AD, there's just so much great theological and philosophical concepts that come out in good Christian art. Mm. There's some that are more obvious than others. Uh, and in the early days, it was almost exclusively art within the church context, mosaics and basilicas, stained glass windows in the Middle Ages. But they weren't just to be decoration. They never were. They were meant to teach. They were meant to draw people to Christ, Mm. to teach them church history, to remind them of the apostles and their deeds, Christ and his works. Um, And that was really a game changer for me. Because I I'd always been looking in my own professional career in, in Pensacola for that deeper significance. And it, again, there's nothing wrong with just creating beautiful pictures. Beauty is an attribute of the divine. I said that um, already. But I wanted there to be a deeper meaning beyond just beauty. I really wanted mm-hmm. to actively call people 
and confront people. That's a kind of an aggressive term, but confront people with reality um, because Christ is truth. And I wanted to do that through my work in a way that just beautiful artwork didn't quite accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I just, I could never figure out how. And I also, again, I needed to pay the bills. So I was sticking with those genres that I knew would, would sell. Yeah. So as I'm taking these courses, I'm able to experiment a little bit and think a lot more, write papers, which I love doing. I love writing. And it all started to come together academically Mm. in a really profound way. For me, it was, again, a a game changer. Mm. And then um, this this starts to segue into the stained glass side of things, my current okay. profession that I love. So are there, any, are there any questions up to this point? No, I think that makes sense. So I know that now at this point, you're getting toward the end of your program and really focusing in on the Christian doctrine and the blend yeah. of that with art. So how did you get to that focus? And then what have you been learning from that? So the the way the program is set up at Liberty for their Master of Fine Arts is um, you have to discern some problem, some issue, something that needs a solution. It's pretty open-ended. And then using visual means, it is a Master of Fine Arts program uh, after all. So using your artwork, how can you help bring a resolution to that problem? Hmm. So I was um, listening to the Defenders podcast, reading Chrysostom, and I was really just more and more just bummed out, to be honest, at how few people that claim to be Christians actually practice Christian doctrine re- really holistically beyond just like, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. So throughout the history of the church, there are just the creeds, the doctrines, and it used to be that you had to believe these, you had to affirm them, and you had to live them out to be considered a Christian, to be allowed into a church. And um, mm. I was like, maybe this can be my thesis topic is finding some way to bring the visual arts to encourage the learning, the retention, and the practice of Christian doctrine, because it's critically necessary. Yeah. So that was before I'd done any research, obviously. It's just very much like I looked out there at the landscape of Christianity and American culture and was like, oh, there is a problem here. Yeah, sure. It's just a personal observation. Yeah. And then um, around that same time, I took a class that, again, I I would never have expected to take. It's called Arts and Crafts. And so I thought... (laughs) We're probably going to be making things out of clay. There might yeah, be some clay. Yeah, that's not a great that name. It's not a great <laughs> yeah. course name. So it sounds pretty. Yeah, juvenile. So I didn't know what to expect, but it's actually an overview of the arts and crafts movement, which was a in a visual arts and phil- philosophical movement in the late 1800s, and I think it basically extended to the early 1900s. It started in England primarily, and it migrated to the United States. Hmm. And um, there are a lot of very famous names associated with that. William Morris, uh, A.W.N. Pugin. Hmm. But that class introduced me to stained glass because stained glass was a big part of the arts and crafts movement. Hmm. And I saw some really excellent stained glass that had come from this movement. And I was like, that is a really interesting art form. I needed an internship as part of my requirements. And so I was literally just Googling stained glass (laughs) <laughs> and it, one of the first results was Lynchburg Stained Glass, a studio in Lynchburg, Virginia. And I was like, okay, well, there are studios that make stained glass. Who'd have thunk it? 
So I yeah, clicked who on the link. There were, who, who knew there was anywhere that did that, let alone in the town you're in? Yeah, that's the exact reaction I had. Um, but they install all over the eastern seaboard and even a few international projects. So I was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop in and see if I can do an internship there. And so I, I just walked in cold turkey. And uh, the secretary so was sort of taking it back. So you just like, walk into their office, essentially? Or is yeah, that's it... my office now is what I, <laughs> what I walked into completely unannounced. And uh, the secretary said, hi, can we help you? And I was like, uh, I want to work for you guys. <laughs> and uh, the next week or so, I talked to the owner and he uh, you know, explained exactly what I needed for my uh, education <laughs> requirements. And he was very minimal. They're wonderful, wonderful people there, especially the owner. Um, and so they worked it out so I could do my internship there. And then they gave me a few projects to work on. I started to kind of see this. This is, you know, this is one of those historical art forms that is in- incredibly beautiful. And mm-hmm. it also is almost exclusively used until the modern times to engage with this very idea of what I want to do my thesis on. Within the Catholic tradition, it's meant to inspire um, veneration, which is a whole other topic. It's not idolatry, by the way. Let me just say, uh, start this a lot now. Why are you saying that a lot now? Who's who's coming to you and be like, oh, you make those glass idols? (laughs) It's um, (laughs) this thing called the Reformation, the main you know, leaders were Calvin and Luther. That's a simplification. But and Calvin especially was like pretty vehemently anti-image. I, th- I think I also mentioned that. Graven image, right. Yeah, yeah. And stained glass was a big part of it. And it legitimately within Catholicism at that time, there was a lot of idolatry, hands down. Um, a stand needed to be taken. Mm. So when you see all these saints and the Virgin Mary and, and things like this in stained glass, I, I just have a feeling yeah, maybe I mentioned it too much, but I just have the feeling, especially Protestants are sort of like, wait a second. Yeah, it's very interesting, even within Protestantism, how there's these different traditions. Because I would say, based on, I guess, our tradition, I would think the objections would be more along the like economic responsibility line, you know, of like earthly palaces when that money could be going to help the poor. Kind of like, you know, Judas said, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> And you said our tradition, that's the Wesleyan tradition, right? The Methodist tradition. That's the thing. I'm not exactly sure because Methodist often, you know, it tends to be more high church and they Mm -hmm. would have stained glass and all. I don't know how much it would have to do with theological purposes and how much would it have to do with they do tend to be more like upper class, I guess. But in at least our strain that we were involved in, more... uh, fiscally conservative (laughs) sure yeah i would actually say that's a better consideration or uh qualification a caveat with stained glass Mm. um but luther specifically did say that the catholic church was spending way too much money on art and making their churches beautiful so i think that is a very good consideration Mm. So um, stained glass very much aligns, dovetails with what I was really hoping to to research and study and write this document, this thesis document about. And I thought that would be a really great project for the actual artifact creation side of my thesis, because you have to write a document and you have to create artwork to put your document into practice, as it were. 
So I decided to make a few stained glass windows and not fully build them because that takes a lot of materials, time, and it's beyond one person's capability and a couple semesters to actually create these things full scale. So I'm, I'm doing what I do for work every day. I'm designing these stained glass windows. I'm going to design three of them. And these could literally be handed off to a studio and their team could assemble these windows from what I do. Mm. So there will be a, a large black and white full-size drawing called a cartoon. That's the official name of it. They aren't just things you find in, in the papers. Originally, they were either studies or in stained glass uh, full-size monochrome um, drawings that would then be used for a subsequent stage in the process. So it's like a p- preliminary step. Hmm. So I'll be creating these and they'll be completely uh, accurate as far as size and the the lead came, the lead strips that go in between the glass to keep it in. That's all plotted out and planned for. Uh, co- colors and everything will be put on to a smaller version. I, I call those color cartoons. They're co- color studies or, or references for the glass cutters. Um, Is this all being done digitally or yeah, are you literally so drawing stuff? That's well, yes to both. So, okay. <laughs> so I, I work digitally because within commercial arts, digital, the digital platform has basically taken over everything because it is so much faster. You can work faster, you can save things, you can make changes. And pretty much the, the only art form I can think of commercially that hasn't apparently embraced digital art at all is stained glass. Hmm. So I thought this would be a really good time to see how this works when I was first brought on board, um, basically in a, in a freelance capacity for, for a little while with the studio. I said, well, let's try this digitally and see how it goes. And now that's what I do. Uh, another one of our artists, he's been working with them for decades and decades, and he's all old school, and that's great. That works for him. I work all digitally, and it is great, and it is fast, and it is working extremely well for us. Hmm. Um, so after I finish these full-size cartoons, I'll have different layers. If, if any, any of you listening have worked in Photoshop or with digital art, you know you can sort of stack things on top of each other for people who haven't worked digitally. Maybe it's like sheets of tracing paper that you can lay on top of each other and see through them Mm -hmm. or like old transparencies, uh, for overhead projectors. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Real throwback. Yeah. Real, real old school. People will be able to relate to one of those. (laughs) Yeah. Try to cover. It's funny because the the tracing paper thing is like basically just like if you're old school, the transparencies thing is like, if you're within a very specific window of time. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> at a church. <laughs> well, I guess a school too, but actually my my inductive Bible study professor, Dr. Bauer, he insists that they put a transparency in every classroom he's teaching really? in. Wow. Just in case the projector goes out, he'll be ready and he's got his, his slide. Oh, <laughs> so he doesn't use it, he just keeps it on the side? It's he just there, like and actually... We actually had one class where the projector wasn't working and he popped that out and we were good to go with class because he had his projector. (laughs) Huh. That is is true that, yeah, there's there's some value to having the analog backups. If If the projector goes out and the bulb on the overhead goes out, then you're back to a large sheet of paper. Yeah, just cancel class at that point. That's funny. Um, 
Yeah, so I'm working digitally and each layer is devoted to a specific aspect of the building process for stained glass windows. So one of them is just the lead cane and that's for the glass cutters so that they can put that down, put the glass over it and cut the right shapes. Um, another one is called the trace line layer and that's uh, most stained glass, not all of it, but most of it you'll see um, very much like a pen and ink drawing that goes on top of the glass that sort of defines boundaries and lips and eyes and things like that. So that I have a whole layer devoted to that. Sometimes we can screen print that onto the glass and sometimes our other artisans in the uh, studio will take the, the special glass paints and brushes and paint directly onto the glass with my drawing underneath it. So they're using it as a template. And then there's the full cartoon, and that's what the glass painters will use um, as a guide to shading, doing the value rendering on the glass itself in, in, in real life, as it were. Hmm. Um, but coming back to the doctrinal aspect, each of these windows has a theme, and each of those themes is based on three things. First is just my observations of the culture around me. So my thesis is I, you have to have a, a narrow-ish focus. So it's Protestant doctrine in the United States. That's my focus. Hmm. Um, just me observing from churches I've been in and visited, people I talked to uh, that would fall into that category, that set of demographics. Um, hmm. What do they seem to know? What do they not know? And then there's a really good survey that's put out by um, Ligonier Ministries that asks a lot of doctrinal questions. One of them, for example, is, you know, is God a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes or no? So it can be very simple, but then later on they have another question that says, is Jesus Christ the best and greatest being created by God? And a lot <laughs> of people answer yes to that Ooh. question. And well, that's what the Jehovah's Witness would say. And that is heresy. But it's a, it's a slightly subtle form of the question but if you're yeah. trained to understand what it, what the attributes of God are, what literally the word God means within Christianity, then you know that question essentially, in a philosophical sense, it must be false because Jesus Christ is not a creation. He is God. He is uncreated. I literally had a student in my small group this past Sunday night. We were doing discussion questions, and the question was, how has Jesus helped you overcome temptation? And this oh. one student said, well, I know how I would answer that about God, but I'm not sure about Jesus. Mm, right. Uh, huh. Right. I'm like, well, Jesus is God. Let's start there. <laughs> 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 yeah. And that's just one example. I mean, there were, there were a lot of questions on that survey, and several of them were just clear black and white issues, not gray, not even close to gray. And the sort of percentage of people that didn't answer, you know, strongly affirm or strongly disaffirm, it mm. was honestly kind of staggering. It was shocking. What was the origin of this survey? So it's called the State of Theology Survey. I'm not sure if it's annual or biannual. I think it's annual. Okay. I can put a link to it in the show notes. For I would recommend it. I think it's pretty, um, it's just good information. And then I have a couple of books that about just evangelicals in the U.S. and how they, they really don't know the doctrines the, the, that their denomination affirms or Christianity in general affirms. They just do not know. Sure. So be between or among those three resources, I've, I've sort of narrowed it down to three topics. One of the windows is about avarice, because that's a very prevalent sin 
uh, of our Western American mm. culture, materialism and commercialism and the, the quest for more um, greed. And then the idea of the Trinity. So that's a, also a, a very standard stained glass motif anyway. So I wanted to do one that sort of paid homage to the, the tradition of the art form. And then the last one is going to be about the sanctity of life, because that's another very specific non-negotiable in the Western world. And it just 99% of the time is, is not controversial, should not be controversial. It is not a gray area. And mm, yeah. abortion is the obvious one. So there is sort of a reference to um, the unborn in the window, but it, it is beyond that. It's the elderly. Every you know race and nation, those elements will be present as well because those are, <laughs> I don't know if anybody's noticed, but hot button issues right now in the United <laughs> States. And I also wanted, this is particular to my work because there's sort of a delineation between art or visual imagery that's produced purely for learning and then art that's produced, as I've mentioned a couple times already, for contemplation, mm. that beauty aspect. And I'm passionate about both. So I'm trying to bridge that gap, which is, to me, it's a little more difficult than it might sound. A fl- the, the flannel graphs from Sunday school were probably great teaching aids. And they're, they're visual art forms, <laughs> but you would not mm. call them beautiful. Debatable. <laughs> you got me there. I guess some people could debate it. Um, things like graphs and charts, um, those are also visual depictions that are helpful for learning. You might even see cre- ones creatively done and you call them artistic. But mm. again, they probably couldn't be called beautiful, mm. at least not except for a very minimal level of beauty. So those are the two things I try to combine in, in this artwork for my thesis is this, this learning aspect, pedagogical aspect, um, and also an aspect of beauty. That's the combo that I feel like I can really relate to with my visual medium. So much of what I try to do in helping people stay engaged in a story that I feel like they need to hear mm-hmm. is by showing them hopefully beautiful images. Yeah. Right. And so especially with like a lot of the missionary documentaries we've done, I have a story that I think is good for people to hear, but in order to help them stay engaged and just enjoy hearing it, mm-hmm. I want to take the time to do landscape drone shots and time-lapse right. photography and wake up at sunrise and you know get that shot. Right. So yeah, I can really relate to that. There's a really great book that I quote a couple times, and I really, I really recommend it for, for everybody um, mm-hmm. because... The concept of beauty versus ugliness, it's just, it's almost not a conversation anymore, even within the church. And that is, it's a crime. I mean, I would say it's a, a massive victory of the enemy. Mm. I declare that. I, I, I know that for certain. But in this modern or postmodern, depending on how you want to define our, our current culture milieu of you do you and it's all good, there is beautiful and there is ugly and one is godly and one is not. And so there's a book that's written by, I think he's still the president of Wheaton College, uh, Philip Ryken, R-Y-K-E-N, and it's called Art for God's Sake. I think it has a, a subtitle, but I can't remember what it was. And it's very short. It's, it's a short read. That's his focus, is how are mm-hmm. we creating art in any, any media mm-hmm. that is glorifying to God in both its upstanding qualities, moral content, and also in its technical excellence, um, and, and he 
cites the Old Testament with the the first, you know, impartation of the Holy Spirit to Bezalel and his friend. I can never remember the friend's name that are, you know, um, commissioned by God to create the articles for the tabernacle. And um, there's a lot of attention to making things of excellent quality. So Mm -hmm. that's just one of many examples. It's important to God. And Riken talks about how the appeal, just mass appeal of the inane and ugly and brutal it has taken over modern the modern art context in so many ways. And it's just, it's evil. It's wrong. Is that um, takeover of the ugly, does that come from more like not really having standards and being overly encouraging and just like anyone's effort is appreciated because it's the thought that counts kind of attitude? Ooh, that It's a great question. Um, I, I really don't feel totally adequate to answering that. I can give you some insights from what I've read, but I'm, I'm not an expert on, you know, how did the modern, I, I hesitate to say postmodern right now because I, I just listened to a William Lane Craig podcast where he talks about how postmodernism isn't, it's, that's not what we're in because people still actually do believe in ultimate truth of some kind. Like some things just have to be true. So whether we're in modernism or postmodernism, um, how that came about and how it relates to the visual arts it's pretty complicated from what, from what I've read um, as the enlightenment movement took hold of the Western world in the 1800s. Well, it started in the 1700s and, and really ramping up in the 1800s, you know, all the, the classical pillars of civilization, the theistic belief and right and wrong, just everything everybody knew philosophically and morally started to be questioned and then within the arts came World War One, and just the inhumanities and atrocities that were committed on a mass scale during that time in the Western world. That was a real, it seemed like a real turning point. Along with this mass skepticism, there was like, well, look what we've come to. So nothing works the old way. We have to throw it out. And let's find out what that means within our context of the visual arts. So you get Russian constructivism design and you get the the modernist painters that start to come in and make changes. And some of it isn't bad. Some of it's morally neutral. But I, I would argue that most, if not all, of the philosophy that drove those painters designers was evil was was at at best sort of bad philosophy and at worst just inspired by satan to just mess up humanity because that's what he does so yeah you've got this blend then of beauty and teaching what does that look like practically how do you actually go about blending those things well in in my case because i you know i actually just have to produce something and turn it in (laughs) to be to graduate it's going to be these three three window designs um i'm still not quite sure how i'm going to present them i think i'm going to um, we have a large format printer at the studio and that's how we um, go through that process i described a little bit earlier um, so I think I'll print off the full-size cartoons mm-hmm. for display as part of my mm-hmm. show. Nice. I might try to do something with uh, transparencies to to sort of give the effect of stained glass at least a little bit. Ooh. So that's in the back of my mind. Yeah. But one thing I, I state in my thesis is the, the ideas that I'm presenting are truly applicable to any media. Mm. And, and it should be. That, that That's the, the point is whether you're doing flannel graph or illustrating a children's book, or working mm-hmm. with oil paint or charcoal or what have you, these things are viable to your art form, whatever it is. So how mm-hmm. are you, artists, considering how to 
teach people about God, you know, the, the yeah. one true God, the triune God, and how are you demonstrating technical excellence that's genuinely worth engaging with visually hmm. and art that glorifies God because God is a God of beauty, not of ugly. So for someone like me or other artistic people, what advice would you give just as they start this process of, of trying to be more effective and what they're doing? I feel the answer to that can be so broad because yeah, I don't know what purview people will be coming with that question in, in hand. Yeah. In a very general sense, kind of to any artist, um, I'll just sort of reiterate what I've, what I've alluded to. Are you striving for, for excellence? Because I, I, I'm, I'm 33, so my generation and generations younger than me, I think we struggle strongly with entertainment apathy. We do not want to work hard. We want things easy, and we want to be entertained. So resist that with all with all your might. Resist that. How are you training yourself? How are you seeking God to excel your technical ability and your crafts? Mm. And how are you upholding your faith, your worldview, your Weltanschauung? I think the Germans say that's one of those philosophical terms I love throwing out because it sounds cool. Um, <laughs> how are you demonstrating that within your artwork? It doesn't have to be over like, this is Jesus feeding the 5,000. <laughs> Usually it's not going to be. I mean, you, if, if you're a, working for a living as a commercial artist in any context, you have clients. Yeah. But will you, f- for example, will you design an ad campaign for a cigarette company? You know, that's, that's kind of a gray area because cigarettes aren't talked about in the Bible, but treating our bodies the temple of the Holy Spirit is. So maybe that's not the best campaign to be working on. Maybe it would really uphold your Christian testimony well to say no to that commission or that client. So there's a million ways that that mindset could present itself. But how is your affirmation of Christianity, of becoming like Christ, what does that look like in your context as a creative? Mm -hmm. That's good. There has to be an aspect where you're you're feeding yourself things that are going to make you more like him, that are going to make you more holy, and and then bringing that out in, in what you're creating. Yeah, it's that last statement, letting it come out in what you do. Mm-hmm. And, and again, there's, there's just too much of a divide between our church or our spiritual life, so-called, and our real practical work life. This is something your dad talks about a lot. So yeah, definitely spiritual and Christian disciplines, feeding yourself, but then really being intentional about letting that work out in your work. One more question I had is just the specifics of the three pieces you are doing. Um, Have you started the specifics of those designs at this point, or is that something you'll be working on this coming semester? There's still things I have to work out, especially with the Sanctity of Life window, because the main panel of that, I had an idea that's pretty, but I don't know if it, um, within the research, I delve into instructional design theory and ways to teach and help people retain information. And I don't know if that main panel does justice to those research points. Hmm. So I'm trying to think how I could kind of redesign that to go along with the research better. Mm-hmm. And this comes back to catechesis, the because I, I don't know if we've barely talked about that concept. Um, I'm glad you said that because I was just about to suggest that we uh, define the catechism for any listeners who yeah. are wondering. 
For sure. So it was the standard way that the church developed Christians up until about the early 1800s. And obviously, this is all based in Scripture. From the Old Testament, we have, you know, write these things on your hands, put them on your forehead, teach them to your children. And that's the at base, the concept of catechesis is just rigorous training in the faith. Uh, so Christian doctrine, Christian life, it's very holistic. New converts would go through this process that was called catechesis or the catechumenate. And the people who went into it were called um, catechumens. The people who taught were called catechists. You can see how it starts to get a little confusing to keep up with all the similar names. <laughs> and they were taught by the catechist very rigorously. They went through church doctrine. They learned about the nature of God. And they were expected to live these things out for an extended period of time. And they would not let people enter the church if there were clear and obvious unrepentant sins in their lives. If they didn't change because they were a Christian— then they weren't allowed to join the church because clearly this person did not mean it. And that is probably extremely controversial now. And I hmm. say it unapologetically because I've read strong appeals from some of the brightest theologians, philosophers, uh, pastors, scholars, and they all say, like, we need to return to this. Hmm. But a catechism as a book usually, if not always, contained three components, sometimes more but it always contained three components. And that was uh, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Um, those are the same thing. Sorry, I'm, I'm not going to say four. Those are the same. Decalogue, Ten Commandments. Um, the Lord's Prayer, and then the Apostles' Creed. So with these themes, those I also considered what was always included in Protestant catechisms. So from the Lord's Prayer, we read, give us this day our daily bread, which is the answer if you will, to avarice and greed, right? We trust the Lord to provide for our needs and he supplies from his, you know, his generosity. With the sanctity of life, so that's from the Lord's Prayer, with the sanctity of life, mm -hmm. that goes to the Decalogue, thou shalt not murder. So that covers another of those three. Yeah. And then the Apostles' Creed, we believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and then it affirms the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So the Trinity is creedal. And that is another reason I chose that central window to have the Trinity beyond just being a sort of an homage to the tradition of stained glass. So those three primary facets of Protestant catechisms, I've incorporated a bit of each mm. into one of these windows. Gotcha. And there's cool. so much material that's, um, I mean, this could be an, and I, I, I really do hope it is an ongoing project. And mm -hmm. that's kind of the way that the program is constructed is that this is something you can carry on into your career um, yeah. or your, your later life as an artist. Because I, I just really, it again, it doesn't have to be stained glass, but that's my medium. I love mm -hmm. it. Sure. And there's so much material in those three concepts yeah. that yeah. a lot of Protestants just do not really know. They don't really understand. Uh, we we, we mm -hmm. talked a little bit about multimodal teaching and that is also right. very much um, aligned uh, with the catechesis process. In the earliest days, before mm. writing and literacy was prevalent, it was very much an oral tradition. Mm. Uh, words were spoken, things were memorized. And today, obviously, there's still, you know, in, in Protestant congregations, usually have praise and worship and then the sermon. So the, the oral tradition is still very much a part of the Protestantism today. Yeah. Text is scripture primarily, obviously. Um, so that's not going anywhere. So those are two modes, right? And then there's 
one that I feel is is underrepresented, and that's the visual. Hmm. Specifically, we've talked about this now um, pretty well, the aspect of beauty. Hmm. There's a lot of multimedia entertainment or visual input in churches. We've got the lights. We've got <laughs> lights, camera, and action. We've got that. We've got the we've got the loud sound systems and the high definition everything, but churches spend and this actually goes back to what you mentioned, Daniel. As far as costs, churches spend hundreds and thousands mm-hmm. and millions of dollars on audiovisual equipment, and some of it is absolutely yeah, necessary because they think it enhances the like worship yeah, and educational experience. Exactly, so that's true. That's a total parallel. I didn't even. It's certainly. That. It certainly helps the entertainment value, no doubt about it. And I know some of it's mm-hmm. necessary. I'm not against audiovisual. But um, as a good Protestant, I'm really concerned with how much that costs and what the actual edifying gains are Mm. from that expenditure. Mm. If we were to take, let's just say a church takes half its audiovisual budget and puts it into pedagogical, beautiful artwork for the sanctuary, for the, you know, classroom spaces, that should be an active conversation. And, And obviously, I mean, I am biased, but I have research to back it that that would be a wise investment. That's really interesting, though, to think that it is basically the same thing that these cathedrals and, you know, old time churches that invested so much into the architecture, into the um, those types of static visual elements, right. all, like all of that has been funneled into like cheap buildings exactly. with expensive equipment. Yeah, the, 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 the black warehouse. box church auditorium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I hope. And that's, that I mean, yeah. you know, the, the cathedrals, that's, Daniel, um, that's um, it doesn't mm-hmm. play in my research a ton. I do mention them, but in my own thinking and, and approach, mm. the cathedrals are really inspirational because they, they definitely spent way too much on them, <laughs> hands down. But as far as places mm. of sacred places mm. that are created to have people interact, or at least are conducive, they're designed to, to allow people to interact with God and teach them about God, they are masterpieces, quintessential masterpieces. In Chartres Cathedral in France, it's one of the best preserved cathedrals from the medieval times. So it's it's just a good example, but it's it's sort of archetypal of any good cathedral. But on the outside, first of all, you have just mind-blowingly beautiful architectural and the grounds around them. And the grounds usually had things like um, labyrinths. Um, and then the church itself on the exterior would have uh, statuary that would be figures from church history it would be scenes from the Bible. It would be scenes from church history. So illiterate lay people or illiterate commoners that were not religious would walk by and have to think about what these amazing statues meant, this beauty that they couldn't see literally anywhere else in their entire lives. What does that mean? Why is that important? Why did somebody spend so much money to have that on their building? Mm-hmm. Um, and then as you go inside, the word for what we would call the the sanctuary area in Protestantism, um, the area where everybody sits, the kind of the main sitting area, that's called the nave. And it's from the Latin navis, which means ship, because uh, there's a lot of wonderful writings about how the church is, is like the ark in the flood, where the believers board the the ark, the, the church. They come into the church and they are saved from the, the chaos and floods of the world. In hmm. classical cruciform, cool. cross-shaped floor plans of the cathedrals, and a lot of churches are still like this, yeah. the church is oriented west to east. So you enter on the west side, you're facing east where 
Jesus returns. So you're looking towards the return of Christ. The the left and right arms face north and south. So you're on you're standing on a cross. It's just to remind you of, of the work that Christ did. And usually there are big stained glass windows in the on the east, sometimes on the west behind you, and then in the north and the south, uh, transepts is what they're called. So you have those areas of the church where people can come and look. And again, before mass-produced illustrations and television, people back then, that that was their non-real-life visual item. There really wasn't anything else. They didn't have paintings and drawings available. So they went into the church and they looked at these images that were stunningly beautiful and larger than life and so complex in their narratives sometimes. They told the the story of the lineage of Christ from Jesse, called the, the Jesse tree motif. And even if they're illiterate, they, they're intrigued, they can remember it. It's so interesting. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And they ask the priest, why is this important? What does this mean? Oh, the places that can go theologically, you know, the hypostatic mm-hmm. union of Christ, that he's truly God and truly man. And he came through this lineage of people that included great kings and the, the least of, of nobodies and foreigners. And I mean, that's a, an incredibly rich theological vein that's incredibly important. As Paul mentioned earlier, some people might not even really realize that Jesus is God and human. But even if people affirm that, what does that mean? Why is that important? What is the significance? And why do we believe that? Visual art can't give all those answers specifically, obviously. Those are complex questions and complex answers. But to have something to hold on to mentally as that conversation is had, that's something that uh, anyone can cling on to in their minds and remind them then of what is discussed and what they've learned, a visual mnemonic. And that's one of many ways in which visual arts and illustration help teach and help retention of information. What I'm reminded of, too, while you're talking is, I mean, obviously you're focusing on art because that's what you do and that's what you're studying. But really, this whole line of thinking applies to whatever work you do. This idea of incorporating theology, incorporating your love for God, and then trying to image that as best you can to the people around you. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I love that, you know, God is infinite. And so how, however many billions, maybe trillions of people that are in heaven in eternity with, with the Lord, we're all together, how we each uniquely reflect his being or, you know, reflect his light. Mm-hmm. My purview, at least right now, is is visual art. And I'm really grateful to have, you know, been been put in these circumstances where I get to study it in a way that's so meaningful and and I see a real eternal value to it, and I'm trying to engage with that um, thoroughly. But it, like you just said, it, it, however God has created you uniquely in whatever facet you reflect His glory in a way that nobody else can, there's gonna there's gonna be clear parallels to everything we've we've talked about with excellence of workmanship, with teaching and learning, and calling mm-hmm. others to to holiness and all those aspects. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thanks for yeah, just sharing more of what you're learning. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It's been great to articulate these things for an audience. This is the most comprehensive description I've given. So it'll be, uh, if nothing, if literally nothing else, it'll be great practice for defending <laughs> here in a few months. But no, it's been, it's been great.
I should say something too, like goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 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 <laughs>